0: Let's pray together. Father, now we wanna hear the, the voice of the Lord Jesus. May the Lord of the church speak to your church now. May the spirit move and work so that by the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ we are led by Christ. Oh God, what we want more than anything else in this moment is to see you, to know you. This is eternal life, that we we would know you, the one true and living God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I pray that in this moment nothing else would matter but that. So we pray one thing, that we may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And that we would dwell with you in your house forever. So speak, we pray. And may we see. And may we love. And may we worship. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we are now four sermons in to our 2020 vision series. Let me just kind of recap where we've been. So for three Sundays, we took three key formative texts on eldership, on shepherding oversight. And then we took those three formative texts and put a foundational text underneath. And we did that for this reason. We said in those three sermons on those three key texts about eldership, that part of our 2020 vision about oversight, our ambition is to know our people more clearly, speak to them more specifically, and lead them more effectively. Now that has to be stated not just as an ambition, but as an aspiration, because we know our limitations. Stephen, Dave, and I cannot know everybody north, south, downtown campuses. We can't know everybody perfectly. We can't even know you sufficiently. We're not going to know everyone. Even with a team of elders, there's no way that all of the elders are going to know everyone well enough. That's why we have shepherding structures, not just shepherding people. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have Sunday school classes. That's why we have a body of Christ that is leaning in and and speaking to one another and praying for one another to know one another. All those things are true and important. But the foundational text reminds us we can't know everyone perfectly, love everyone perfectly, but Jesus does. The chief shepherd knows you perfectly, loves you perfectly, and what the under shepherds love to do is to perpetually point you to that chief shepherd. That's why we're here. That's why the church exists. And so, in the month of February, those four sermons now are leading to, in the month of March, a new angle on our 2020 vision. Because some people may think to themselves, okay, I, I think I know what elders are supposed to do, but what am I supposed to do? I think I know what shepherds are supposed to do, but what about the sheep? What about the participation of the flock? How did the shepherds and the sheep, how do we come together? in the church. That's what the month of March is going to be about. Not just the work of the shepherds, but the participation of the flock. So we have five sermons in which we're trying to to lay out what does the church do? What is the church? What does it do? How does it function? How do you play a part in it? Historically, people have said there's three marks of a true church. Three marks. A church is the place where there's the gathered assembly of people who belong to Jesus. And what's supposed to happen there is that the word is faithfully preached, the ordinances are faithfully administered, and discipline is faithfully exercised. And in all three of those, in preaching, in the ordinances, and even in discipline, Jesus promises his presence. He promises to be with his church. We're not just gathering as some social club. Jesus promises to be present in his church. So what we're doing this morning is we're taking that first mark. The word truly or faithfully preached. And we need to ask the question. We're going to be asking the question in the weeks that follow about the ordinances and about discipline and about how the body works together to build itself up in love. But this morning we're asking the crucial question, what is preaching? What is this moment in the life of the church? Why does this pulpit have central place in even the architecture of this church. I wrote a whole book about what preaching is. I said the the ministry of the word of which preaching is a part. Preaching is stewarding and heralding the word of God in such a way that the people encounter God through his word. That's what it is. God revealed himself in scripture, and now when we give his word a voice, God re-reveals himself through his word. So the people of God encounter God afresh. We hear his voice again. I want to not just preach that whole book and all the texts that went into it. I want to look at a passage this morning that I think gets right at the heart of what preaching is and what preaching does. I want to say that what preaching is, is it's when the voice of Christ comes to his church. That's what it is. The voice of the Lord of the church speaks to his church. That's what preachers do. Bring his voice to his church. I see that in Revelation chapters two to three. So what I want to do is I want to look in general at these messages to the seven churches. At first I planned to preach a whole sermon on all of the characteristics of that. But then the the more that I did that, Jesus, I believe, led me more and more to one message to that first church. So that's what I'm gonna do, speak in general about these messages to the seven churches in Revelation two and three, and then we're gonna drill down pretty deep into that first message to the church at Ephesus. So here's what we see in the letters to these seven churches, these seven messages from Jesus. We see the voice of Christ coming to his church, and what we see is that the risen Christ knows his church intimately. He speaks to his church very specifically he warns the church. He promises blessing to the church. He urges immediate response. And what you see is that he has a different, specific word for each church. He doesn't speak generically to these churches as he's going and the message is coming as you travel this road in Asia Minor to all these seven churches and he's going in order, he doesn't just say generically the same things. He has specific commendation for them, specific admonition for them, specific blessing, specific warning. And that's why we, in our church, are are wanting to move in this direction of campus-specific preaching Because we recognize that Jesus is going to speak very specifically to churches and where they're at. They're not facing the same situations. They don't have the same group of people. They don't need the same word. There's going to be a specificity to the voice of Christ who knows his church intimately. So that's what we're longing for. We're longing for that place where we can hear the voice of Jesus specifically to us in what we're going through, what we're facing, because we know that in Mountains View, in downtown Minneapolis, Lakeville, it's not going to be the same. Jesus is going to have a, a specific word. Now, I don't want you to only think this would be a mistake, It would be a mistake to think that some earthly preacher is then trying to understand what the voice of Jesus is for the church, and then he just preaches it as if it's some kind of performance. The better he does, the better people respond. You cannot take the Holy Spirit out of preaching Without the Holy Spirit, all you have is somebody reading their notes. What we see in the letters to the seven churches is that each time it's not only the voice of Jesus speaking, but every time, chapter 2, verse 7, verse 11, verse 17, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 6, verse 13, verse 22, what does it say? Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. It's not just the voice of Jesus speaking. You might say, I thought he was speaking. Now, why does it say at the end, it's the Spirit speaking? Because it's the voice of Jesus by the Spirit of Jesus that speaks to the churches through preaching. You need the Word and the Spirit to come together for preaching to be real preaching. Now, what is the Word then? What is the word specifically in Revelation 2, verses one to seven? This is what happened to me. I was thinking about preaching, thinking about it in Revelation 2 to three, but suddenly it started to feel a little abstract. A step removed from that specific voice that I think Jesus wants to give to us. And this word just worked me over. And I want him to speak to us this way. Here's what we're going to see in Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7. We see the same pattern that he has for all of these seven churches. There's an introduction, there's a commendation, then there is an accusation, an admonition, and a conclusion. So that's what we're going to walk through, these movements of the text, of what Jesus has to say. Introduction, then there's commendation, accusation, admonition, and then conclusion. So let's walk through these and we'll see the point of what he has for this church. Look at verse one in the introduction. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So three things in this one verse. You notice he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus. I don't have a lot of time to go into detail about this debate, about how people take this. It could be that angel here, which just means messenger, could be an earthly messenger, the pastor of the church, or it could be a heavenly messenger, that is the Angelic representative of the church, and I agree with the vast majority of commentators that this is an angelic being. Every time you get this word for messenger in Revelation or angel, it's always angelic beings. Always, Revelation two to three. Then I think is following suit because elsewhere in the Book of Revelation, what you have again and again is these angels that are representatives of the church. And so you have this church as the assembly of the citizens of heaven on earth and the angelic representatives of the heavenly assembly coming together. The church is an earthly assembly of the citizens of heaven and heaven is part of this, participating in this overseeing all of this. But the focus here is not on the angel, but upon Jesus. Every time in one of these introductions, you have a self-disclosure of the person that's speaking. And here, the picture that we see is Jesus sovereignly holding the seven stars, walking among, surveilling The seven golden lampstands. What is that? Well, we've already heard that the the seven stars from Revelation 1, they they are the the angels, these angelic representatives, and the, the seven golden lampstands are the churches. So Jesus has sovereign authority over everything, including the angels, sovereignly holding them as king, and intimately knowing his church walking among them doing surveillance inspecting everything that's happening this is real jesus is god with us dwelling with us knowing his people the picture here is that jesus who has sovereign power is never out of touch with his church he is transcendent in his power and he is so Present with his presence, imminent, dwelling with us, knowing us. That's why the next word is, I know your works. He knows everything about us. That was Stephen's point last week as the great shepherd. He knows the flock perfectly so he can speak with authority and specificity. And now he brings this commendation. Verses 2-3 to He commends them for their deeds, for their doctrine, and their endurance. Don't take my word for it. Look at it. First, their deeds. I know your works, your toil. And then their doctrine. How you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. Or later in verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So there's a discerning they're doing in their doctrine. And then third, their endurance, and your patient endurance. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So if you summarize the picture, Jesus as he's walking among this church in Ephesus, he sees perfectly what's happening, and he commends them, you're very active, you're very discerning in the claims that others are making that are false, and you, you hate the works of those who are doing evil, and you're, you're, you're running the race with endurance, it, it looks like this is a great picture. It looks like things are going well in Ephesus, but appearances are deceiving. Because when he moves now to accusation, it is devastating. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you you have abandoned the love you had at first. Things are not well in Ephesus. From an outsider's perspective, those who just look on the exterior, it looks like things are going well. They're active, discerning, enduring, and Jesus says, I'm looking underneath all of that to the heart, and it's not there. If you're growing to be like Pharisees, honoring me with your words, your heart's far from me. He doesn't just say, You're losing your love for me. He says, You abandoned it. You abandoned the love that you had at the first. What does that mean? I want to give you a word picture. Right now, the highest divorce rate in our nation is among empty nesters those who've had their children leave and go to school, college, whatever. Why is that? What is that dynamic, what's happening if you're gonna diagnose that? Well, what happens is that two people who originally fell in love, got married, were all about this relationship, and then they had children, and then suddenly, rather than having themselves be the focus, they, they switched subtly from focusing on being spouses to being parents. And suddenly that's all they were. They focused on their parenting so that suddenly when the kids are gone and now they gotta focus on each other again, they realize there's nothing there. We've lost it. And they decide there's no hope for this and they divorce. Do you hear Jesus' warning? He says, that's what you've done. This subtle shift in focus from loving me. When you first knew me and I was everything and I was the focus, there's a shift that's happened. And now it's about the the work that you do for me and contending for me and enduring for me and you're losing me. The focus has shifted, it's disordered. You're putting things out of order here. So what is the word then? Well the word for Bethlehem that is very powerful to me is to understand that hating error is not loving Christ. Contending for doctrine is not the same as loving Christ and finding communion with Christ in that doctrine. Working for Christ is not the same as loving Christ. We're always going back to the heart of it. Is Jesus, love for Him, at the heart of everything? Our contending for Christ has to flow from the fountain of loving Christ, or it's not real. We are in danger of losing that. So, what is His word? to this devastating diagnosis? We hear it now in the admonition, verse five. Three things. Remember, repent, and return. Remember, verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Let's take those one at a time. First he says, remember therefore, from where you have fallen. What's he saying? He's saying, remember, that is go back to that place when we first met. When that connection, when union with me happened. Do you remember that? And it's not just recall something and leave it back there. It's to bring something from the past into the present so that it feels present. You remember it. You live in it. You remember, what did that look like? How did that feel? What was it like when Jesus was everything, when he was at the center, when it was all about him? What was that like? And then he says, remember what that was like. See what it's like now. Compare and contrast. And here's the picture you'll get. He says, remember where you've fallen from. That original connection of love with me when I was everything, remember it. See where you're at now and look at how far you've fallen. And once you see that and weep over that, repent, which means you're going to turn around and go back. Go back to that. Want that again. It reminds me of one time when we as a family went hiking, and we were going to this summit, and the trail wasn't well marked, so we missed our turn. And we kept hiking. And we kept hiking. And we kept thinking, surely the summit's got to be here. And we got to, like, this river, like, this is not where we're supposed to be. Looked at the map. Sure enough, what was a two-mile hike turned into an eight-mile hike back. And this is what Jesus is doing. Look how far off you've come. You think right now, it looks good that you're you're doing my work. You've, You've lost me. Return. But it's interesting, isn't it? A little bit counterintuitive. We think return to the love you had at first. He says, no, do the works you did at first. In other words, works are not the problem. When you first knew me, when everything was about me, there was a character and quality to all the works that you did, go back to that. He's not saying stop working, work is bad, just just linger with me, he's saying no. Go back to when love for me was the fountain of everything, and therefore, what flowed downstream from that was pure. It was flowing from love. It wasn't flowing from duty, wasn't flowing from just, "This is what good Christians do. It's flowing from loving me. When it was all about me, when there were no other distraction, when I was front and center go back to that, and the character and quality of the works that flow will be pure. The picture you get, in other words, is that things had subtly shifted and Jesus is saying that the the engine at the front of this train that has to be pulling the rest has to be love for Christ. Everything else has to be flowing from that. It's it's like this picture I get of the the old time kind of trains where you were shoveling coal in there into the furnace. Jesus is saying, it looks like the train's rolling on, but you've stopped putting coal in the furnace. It's no longer being fueled by me, love for me. So you're going to run out of steam because now it's shifted to your work your effort, what you're doing, and you're not going to endure because it's not coming from love for me. In other words, Ephesus is like a flower that's been cut. Oh, it, it looks pretty for a while. You can smell it for a while, but a cut flower is a wilting flower. And Jesus is saying, Ephesus, that's what you are. And unless you repent and return, get back into the soil of love for me, you're not going to last. So now he brings the warning, this conclusion, verses five to seven. If not, that is, if you don't remember, repent and return, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Next week when we look at discipline faithfully exercised, we're gonna say what discipline is, is it's removing someone from the assembly whose whose torch has gone out. They're holding a the torch, but it's not lit. They're no longer part of the body. And you say, remove that person. Jesus is talking about doing church discipline on a total scale. Removing the entire assembly and saying you're no longer a church. When love for Christ leaves the church, the church is gone. The church is dead. You can have orthodoxy that's dead orthodoxy no love and Jesus says that's not a church but listen to the promise verse 6 this you have you hate the work of the nicolaitans which i also hate he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers i will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of god what he's saying is not just you're gonna have paradise. If, if you have love for me, and this connection holds, you're gonna have paradise, he says, paradise of God. When you go to somebody's house, it's, it's not about the stuff they have. It's not about they got good entertainment, good toys, whatever, it's, you're going to that person's house. You're gonna be with them. Jesus is saying you're gonna be in the paradise of God forever, dwell forever. So what happened to me was not just finding out, okay, here's the main point, contending for Christ has to flow from the fountain of love for Christ. If that doesn't happen, Jesus threatens terrible things. If it does happen, he promises wonderful things But for me, when Jesus started now speaking very personally, I just started thinking, I remember what it was like when I first met him. And he was everything to me. I remember the way I prayed, the way I read the Bible, the way I shared him with others. I remember all of that. And then I thought about where I'm at now. And I started thinking, how do do I get back there, Jesus? How do I get back there? And I started thinking, and I started praying, and I started, okay, how how am I going to manage my life in such a way that I'm going to get back to there? And you know what? I was getting totally overwhelmed. And then I just read something. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And in that moment, I just started weeping because he was showing me something, saying, "If, if you're gonna come back to me, remember this. I want to be with you even more than you want to be with me. Returning to that place may sound to you like so hard, it's just opening the door, because I'm coming to you. It's not just you pursuing me. I'm always pursuing you, Jason. I'm always pursuing you. I'm always knocking and asking to have more time with you, and here's what's happening with you. Jesus comes to the door. How many times did I say to him, go away. I'm busy. I'm busy writing a sermon, Jesus. I'm busy answering an email, Jesus. If you want... This love for Jesus, it's just open the door when he he knocks and he calls your voice and he's, he's asking for time with you. What could be more worthy of your time and energy and attention? That's what was different for me. When I first came to know him and it was all about him, I looked so forward to those knocks. To hear his voice, every opportunity I felt like, yes, more. And in that moment, there was bitter repentance, but great hope. What I want to do, Jesus, I'm praying every time I hear your voice, every time I hear that knock, I'm answering. I'm opening. Spending time with you. No greater thing. Some of you, maybe, you're hearing his call for the first time. I'm just pleading with you. Answer it. Answer it. Why would he come to you? Why would he want you? Everything that you need to make it to heaven, he has already done. He has already died for your sins. He's already given himself so that when you hear that knock, it's not like a debt collector It's like somebody saying, debt's been paid. You can now be with me forever in the paradise of God. I'm urging you. I don't know why you're here and all the things that God did to bring you to this moment, but I know he's knocking. And I'm calling you to answer. And if you're a Christian, and if you've seen now in your life what it used to be like And maybe the subtle shift to focus on something else, what it's like now, I'm calling you. As he knocks, as he calls, let's answer. Communion is a chance to do that. Communion is is a big knock from Jesus. Not just to go back to that first love that we had for him. We love because he first loved us. It's taking our torch, that's flickering, going out, and going back to the original flame, the price that he paid to be with us forever. And he's present in this. When somebody invites you to a meal, the meal isn't the main thing. It's an invitation not just to a meal, but to friendship. It's an invitation to that person to know them. That's what this is right now. Hear the knock. Hear the call. Hear the invitation in this to meet with Jesus and answer his call to remember, repent, and return. Let's pray. Father, ask in this moment, I ask for your grace I ask for a grace to remember. For everyone to go back and remember what it was like when Jesus was everything. When it was new and fresh and living. And then to see where are we now. Help us to have spiritual honesty. What things have gotten in the way? What, What subtle shift? What disordered things have happened? And God, give us a grace to go back, to hear the knock at the door, to hear the voice calling and say, Jesus, come in. Come all the way in. Meet with me, eat with me, commune with me. I want to know you more. God, do this now in this meal. In Jesus' name, amen.